0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Debra podcast. This week is the second part to my episode with James Lindsay on groomer schools. James is the author of Race Marxism and hosts the New Discourses podcast. If you haven't heard the first part of today's conversation, it is episode 39 titled James Lindsay part three. If you're like me and can never seem to remember what day of the week it is, today's episode is number 40 and is titled James Lindsay part four. If you missed parts one and two, they were recorded when my podcast first launched last year and are numbered episodes 11 and 17. In this episode, I also mention Michael Malice and Blair White. They appeared on my podcast on episode 22 and 34, respectively. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and you can follow me on social media at Dr. Deborah So. You can also support the podcast on Patreon at Dr. Deborah So. In terms of the discussion of critical race theory, I've noticed, and Race Marxism is a great book, please everybody go get it. It's, I think it's very helpful if someone is feeling a bit lost in this. These ideas are intentionally confusing, and I really appreciate that you've taken the time to go in and go digging and really explain it. I've noticed parallels in terms of the ways in which people, so critical race theory and all of this race ideology feeds on people's sympathy and goodwill, because most people will acknowledge, yes, racism exists, and yes, of course we want to end this and make life better for people. So of course they'd be in favor of particular ideas that are supposed to end racism. And so I see the same thing in terms of you know, queer theory and how it takes advantage of people's sympathy for wanting to account for the fact that, yes, gay children had it. I mean, I still think anti-gay sem- sentiments exist, but say in the mm-hmm. past, you know, kids who were gay are being bullied and not being able to tell their parents and, and not having anyone to talk to and using that as a jumping point to then bring in all this other crazy stuff. What is the solution in terms of getting... CRT and all of this critical theory out of education and then out of the West more broadly.
1: I mean, I I don't like to use, you know, kind of nefarious sounding metaphors, but the tentacles have really reached into kind of everything. They really have dug in and dug deeply. Um, so it will not be easy to get out of Western civilization or actually out of education. Um, the parallels that you draw between the uh, queer theory and the critical race theory here are also really poignant. Just to bring up, since you mentioned the Groomer Schools at the beginning, Groomer school series, I did the second one of those reads a queer theory paper about queer theory and education, early childhood mm-hmm. education yes, and early childhood <laughs> development in particular. And the goal of queer theory is not to create a stable LGBTQ identity, it is to make a floating or uh, liberated identity that can change as it needs to. Stability is the enemy. This is why you saw attacks from queer activists on people like Pete Buttigieg, who is openly gay, married to a guy running for Democratic president in the United States. Now he's secretary of transportation here in the United States. And they were saying things like that he might be he might sleep with a man or be married to a man or whatever. But he's not really gay because he's not, he's an not activist. politically he's, gay. He's not politically right. And so the goal isn't to come in compassionately and help. These kids who are dealing with, you know, bullying, or their parents don't don't, you know, want them to be gay or, or rejecting them. It's not to do that. It's to groom them into a political and sexual ideology that is beneficial to queer theorists, mm-hmm. and they say so explicitly in their own words. And I spoke with many gay activists who were active in the '90s for marriage equality, and they point out that they hated the queer theorists even more than they hated the social conservatives. Because the queer theorists were like the enemy inside and they didn't want marriage equality because that would normalize gayness. They don't want to normalize things. They don't want stability, which means they want instability. So these parallels are, are really um, important to understand. And the same thing's happening with critical race theory is that critical race theory has set itself up as the one and only thing you can do to be against racism the right way. And it has very effectively come up with a huge series of rhetorical strategies to brand as racist anybody who tries to use a different approach, especially by undermining the idea of colorblindness, the idea that we would treat people as individuals first um, and not take racial stereotypes into account, except, you know, maybe as friendly, superficial level, you know, joking around or whatever. Um, Since you're an Asian woman, I'll bring up every time I get in a car with an Asian woman, she... Points out that she's an Asian woman and we're going to have some driving excitement going on.
0: I do that, too, actually.
1: Yeah, well, to see the surface level stuff. It's funny and it's cute and it it diffuses tensions and and it bonds people. That's surface level and fun and people can navigate for themselves where those lines are, where it becomes inappropriate Mm -hmm. and have a real discussion. And humor actually facilitates that. But, you know, we don't we don't judge by stereotypes. And that's what colorblindness means. It doesn't mean we don't see color. Of course, I see what your face looks like. Of course, mm-hmm. I see what your skin color. Everybody, they've played this stupid pun on the phrase colorblindness to take it way too literally to then say that colorblindness actually obscures social structures, which is a Marxist concept. Social structures are the relationship between the infrastructure and superstructure, as Marx laid it out in his theories the social relations that condition one's subjectivity and limit the range of one's ability to see oneself as a creator. If you go read the 1844 manuscripts, you can see what Marx is talking about. And so they've just reinvented this. And what they've done is they've said that this idea of judging by content of character and fruits of merits actually reproduces racism by obscuring the social structures. And so they've created this very sophisticated and complicated sounding rhetorical nonsense to basically say that not being racist is the worst form of racism. And they've hooked a lot of people because they're very successful at calling people racist and pointing out something you've probably overlooked Um, or you didn't take into account the effect of redlining and such and such in Chicago and 18, whatever, you know, some Mm -hmm. detail or whatever they'll bring up. They're very sophisticated doing this and they've hooked a lot of people But it's the same trick with the sex point, LGBTQ. You think, oh, it's about helping these poor gay kids. They had a, you know, we've we've bullied them. Everybody our age grew up knowing parents who were like, if my kid's gay, I'm going to beat them up in the snow or whatever, you know. And you're horrified by this and you want to be the opposite of that. And you think that's terrible or I would disown my kid. This isn't. I mean, it it still happens, but this is not predominant reality now, even among conservatives. Um, The vast majority of people put their children first over something like this at this point. And so what they want to do is rather than trying to help those poor kids that you're caring about and trying to help uh, stabilize them and help them understand their situation, help them understand that there will be some challenges, but it gets better. They explicitly throw that out. They want to make sure that they are groomed into a political Radical ideology in which they're not satisfied and they're not stabilized. The same thing's happening in critical race theory. Rather than helping people deal with the fact that there is some racism in the world, that there are some things that are going to come up, whether it's this kind of slow slog through microaggression hell or whatever it happens to be through life, there are going to be these things that are frustrating and irritating and helping people have, you know, coping strategies and teach people to, you know, no, we don't do that. We're going to see each other as individuals. And what can we do? What are your merits? What are your character? What kind of a person are you? Let's aspire to these. What are some values that bring everybody up? Instead, they're going to say, well, those are reproducing of racism. And what you're actually trying to do is keep people racially agitated. And I didn't say any particular race because it's literally all of them. Mm-hmm. You want to keep whites drowning in white guilt you want to keep um blacks kind of drowning in this sense that there's this anti-blackness component to society that they have to be upset about and want to rebel against and overthrow you have to keep people in the various brown and asian races because it gets very complicated there because those aren't one race you have to (laughs) you have to take those people and you have to kind of like Put them in between. They're in this weird middle space in the structure. They're white complicit edging, in white supremacy. Edging. And that they're. Yeah. Mm. So it's to constantly keep everybody racially unstable and unable to relate to one another. And so the only thing that I know of that can possibly get it out is that we have to take, again, a hard line that we're not going to st- lean into racial stereotyping, scapegoating, segregation, discrimination in our schools in particular, but our other institutions you know, if we're going to have something that looks like diversity training or whatever, it better be evidence-based, not theory-based. And it shouldn't be that your company is being tugged around. And this is the kind of the key thing. Right now, there are different scoring metrics that determine how investable your company is
0: right. and
1: whether or not your assets can be managed, so-called ESG scores, environmental, social, and governance. And so your institution is implementing this and hiring these consultants to come in and DEIify your Institutions, so that they can get a plus one on their S score on their ESG. So separating that, you know, that's in a sense the ring pulling the bull around by the nose, separating that out and saying, no, you know what? It's not even good to say there's another way to check this box. It's being required to check this box is BS and should be illegal. Um, Those kinds of things can actually start to get this out of society. We also have to start revealing to people what's going on—that there's a difference between queer theory and LGBT activism. Yeah. That I mean, I had a beautiful conversation. I think he thinks I'm crazy now, and we don't really talk much. But a beautiful <laughs> conversation with Andrew Sullivan about this uh, about two years ago.
0: We had a wonderful has one conversation of my too. Yeah. Yeah,
1: he's a great guy. Um, I know that he's he and I disagree on some things like Trump and stuff, but it doesn't really matter. He's he's, he's a wonderful guy. And he was talking about this in, in tremendous detail. He said, in fact, that he would never would have come, he never would have come out with gay if he was forced to be queer, if he was forced to be politically active in his identity. And the same mm-hmm. thing's true with critical race theory. There are a lot of people who should not be forced, meaning everybody, who should mm-hmm. not be forced to become an identity-based activist based on something as base as race. It is just the worst thing in the world to try to force somebody to base their identity on. And these these two things, we, people need to be alerted to the fact that if two th- that these problems are real. They do exist. They are thorny and they're complicated. And these critical approaches, whether it's queer theory, whether it's gender theory, whether it's critical race theory, are literally the worst possible way to go about dealing with them. They actually get this any possible solution directly upside down. And so getting people to realize, wait a minute, that guy called me a racist because I disagree with critical race theory, but I'm not racist, so ignore that guy. That is super important to realize that this is literally the snake oil equivalent. If you care about LGBT kids, you must fight against queer theory. You must. If you care about a racially um, harmonious, multi-ethnic society like we would have in the United States or Canada— You must reject critical race theory and lean into ideas. I mean, I I know you're Canadian, but we have e pluribus unum here, you know, from (laughs) many one that there's this overarching, what psychologists would say, there's there's an overarching superordinate identity that people, you know, hook into American. And then if you want to be whatever you happen to be ethnically within that, and you're still waving your American flag or your Canadian flag or whatever, great, who cares? Then you can have a pluralistic society that's actually multi-ethnic without having to try to be kind of this pigeonholed, multicultural, squabbling, um, hyper-race-conscious thing. So that individualism that, you know what, we can all see ourselves as, as humans or Americans or Canadians or friends or whatever, even though we have differences um, and we're not going to be super race-conscious, we're going to be individual-conscious, we're going to see what people can do, getting people to understand that these Theories are poison against that and they do not solve the problems they claim to solve, but make them worse is kind of the key, I think, on that level. Legal level is the other side, which I already talked about.
0: I've heard you also talk about how um, with kids, especially white kids, they're especially incentivized to take on a different identity with regard to their gender or sexual orientation because they're white, otherwise they're oppressors and then you know they're seen as the enemy. And so I would say for people who don't agree with what we see happening in the realm of race especially, it's crazy to me, but in today's day and age, I do think not being white offers you a little bit of more of a, people tend to give you a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt if you're criticizing these racial or this race ideology, because Mm -hmm. it's less of a knee-jerk reaction for someone to say, well, she must be saying that because she's racist. I mean, they will still try to, and I think for myself being Asian, I mean, we're seen as white, so I don't even know if being Asian counts anymore. Yeah, you're
1: white now. Welcome to whiteness.
0: (laughs) So I would say, you know, just that I know so many people personally, and I know that from what I hear whenever I write about these issues or talk about these issues, there are many non-white people who are not okay with what is happening. The last column I wrote for the Globe and Mail was about how racial minorities are not in favor of all these crazy leftist policies that claim to benefit them. And so if you, the more you speak out about it, even though it may seem scary and w- why would you want to do that yourself? I mean, it's not going to get better until you do. And I think it's really important to not, especially for parents, I would say, and again, I'm not a parent, so I, I can't speak to what you're feeling, but I think parents can't expect other parents to do it. They have to at some point say, you know, if this is not okay with me, then I have to be willing to, to speak up about it. Uh, That's so correct. I, yeah.
1: Yeah. I'll draw out that one point you made very briefly. Um, you are you did hearken into the idea, this is actually Mao's program that he imp- that he put into effect in China. He created good identities and bad identities. We don't really have to get into the big details of it, but uh, you know he would take the kids in schools and if their parents were, say, rich farmers or, or landlords or something that's a bad identity, or if they were enemies of the state that's a bad identity or bad influences or right-wingers, those were some of the bad identities, then he would bully those kids. But he'd also give them he would see that the program kind of bullied them as well. And then and the, the, there were these good identities that were considered red or communist identities, mostly being activists for his cause. And so you created a funnel where you pressure kids out of a bad identity and into a good identity. And of course, children are very moldable like this. You get to wear the red hat. You get to have the better lunch. They're very simple things you can do to get kids to want to think in a particular way. And so what you see being reproduced with critical race theory and queer theory in tandem within just critical race theory, you could take, say, a white kid and say, you know, you're complicit in structural racism. Isn't that bad? You can become an ally. And so you give them a pathway from bad identity to good identity by becoming political. You take a black individual kid and say, you know, well, you're black, but you don't understand the true nature of systemic racism. So you're not politically black, but if you become an activist that's politically black, then that's good. And so you give them again, a pressure, but with white kids, you actually create an even, I mean, it applies to everybody, but as you just pointed out, kind of with the way this racial ideology and critical race theory operates, it's kind of strongest for white kids. And then you can kind of go down the adjacency ladder or whatever. Um, Another alternative rather than just becoming an ally, which, by the way, is not possible to do right. However you ally, you're actually going to be speaking over or stepping on or messing up all the time. But you can become queer one way mm-hmm. or another. You can change your sexuality. You can change your your gender identity. You can change. You can try to become trans. You can do a lot of different things. Um, and become very political in that. So what you see is not just kind of a social contagion. Oh, the cool kids all have this weird gender ideology or whatever. They're all pansexual, demi romantic or whatever the hell. Uh, but actually there's 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 a pump, a pressure pushing them, not just social contagion where they're drawn because this is what's cool or a fad or whatever. the Goth kids of our era or whatever. There's now a actual pressure. Your identity because of your race happens to be bad. There's very little resolution. You should be an ally. It's not going to be enough. But if you transition, you become part of the revolution. And so this is a reproduction of Mao's program. And so now we've actually hit all three of the Groomer School series. This was the third (laughs) one. Um, And this is part of the reason, not the entire reason. I don't claim to know the whole reason for why you see such a gigantic pressure for children to adopt especially kind of vague things like bisexual and pansexual identities Mm -hmm. that seem not to have, like, you know, they say they're pansexual and they still only date boys, but, um, you know, whatever is because there's, that's a, that's a positive identity in the revolution. Whereas being just a standard, you know, straight white girl is not, it is in fact, it's not actually straight white men who are at the peak of bad. It is straight white women who are the peak of bad in, in, in this, they just don't quite say so. Men are largely ignored. Um, women are twisted. The thumbscrews are put into women so much harder. Hmm. Uh, and so that's why you're seeing such a huge pressure with young women to become you know, some very fluid sexuality or to adopt fluid gender identities or even transitional gender identities.
0: So what do you say? That's interesting when you say it's more difficult for women. So men are basically cast aside and they're just hated. But for women, it's like there's a pressure. There's a social pressure Correct. for them to conform. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, everybody actually knows that feminists were dead wrong and that women are more privileged than men. Like, everybody actually knows that. <laughs> Especially <laughs> yeah. everybody knows that guys will bend over backwards to make women happy. Yeah, there are very many boorish guys. And of course, society was structured in a particular way like 100 years ago or 58 years ago or whatever. And now... Um, that's not the case. But even then, if you listen to their justifications, you know, they wanted to keep women out of politics because they thought it was bad for their, their spirit or whatever. And that this kind of delicate thing they had to hold up. Women are too emotional.
0: That's what another. Well, they also did
1: use the too emotional thing. Um, the truth is though, that in many regards, in terms of like social standing, guys will bend over backwards to make women happy. And so women actually secretly have more privilege if you want than guys do. And so white women are considered sort of a, Double secret; they don't say it. They, of course, blame male privilege for everything, but in actuality, it's recognized. So, women, white women, are pressured probably harder than any other group. And look at what they they write about. You know, the vote doesn't go the way they want Donald Trump or whatever, and they're like, "White women, get your girls." You know, they -hmm. they twist the thumbs thumbscrews very hard on on white women in particular because they actually recognize that that's the pinnacle of privilege. Um, They think that the male privilege is actually a completely false construct. The problem is, is that pretty women can get away with murder, pretty much literally, and they know it. And uh, a lot of it ends up tooling around that reality one way or another.
0: Wild. So, this, uh, just to clarify for people listening, so you're saying like this is the leftist view that women are actually the yes, most exactly.
1: So, yeah, well, they won't they won't say that. They just know it. Women do have. Enormous privilege I actually had a conversation when all this was breaking out a few years ago with a woman and I was like just point blank very simple everything you know she's like 40 ish five ish something like that everything you know now in life everything you get to choose right now we snap our fingers and you can either um, be a male or you get to go back at the beginning of your life and choose male or female and live it out which one and she's like female no question and I was like why she's like guys bend over backwards for women. And this woman wasn't particularly even attractive. She just knows. And so this is... Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Nobody will admit that while there have been all of these, like, terrible patriarchal things pushing women out of positions of privilege or out of positions of power, that guys bend over backwards for women um, in very bizarre ways because um, the filtering mechanism versus the approach mechanism approach to mating in, in our species works that way. And so... This is what I'm saying is this is a reality. The leftists deny this reality, but their theories are actually contoured and applied in a way that understands that the reality is there. They're actually built around this reality. And so they attack. This is part of the reason why you see far more young women undergoing attempted transition and gender and sexual fluidity than you do young men. Also, young men are not terribly excited about cutting their willies off, Um they, they sort of like those. But part of the reason also, though, is that men have just been excluded, like conservatives. The left does not think about conservatives at all. They're just this blank enemy. That's why they can't understand them. There's this blank bad thing. They don't think about them. They don't engage with conservative thought whatsoever. They don't try to understand conservative thought whatsoever. Men are already in that category as well. They don't try to understand it whatsoever. They're just discarded. They're not interesting to the ideology.
0: Well, so I agree with you. I think where we are right now, culturally, women definitely are being pushed away ahead, being given opportunities to the point where, in some instances, I think men are being discriminated against. But I do think sexism does still exist. And in terms of 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 conversations I've had with the young women who are transitioning very quickly... Many of them have experienced sexism. You know, I just, I sat sat in on a conference this past weekend of detransitioners and it's heartbreaking to hear their stories. All of these, I wouldn't say all of them, but it's so common that they have experienced sexual abuse or some form of sexual trauma or they don't like the fact that going through puberty, suddenly they're getting all this male attention that makes them very uncomfortable.
1: Yes. So
0: I think that that can also play a role, but I do agree with you. I think there is probably some pressure coming from Leftists who have this rage at women—the fact that women—we do, we have achieved gender equality for the most part. Not to say that we've stamped out sexism entirely. You know, I, I am sympathetic to people's experiences of sexism. I, th- I think sometimes people look at the things I say and they assume that I completely dismiss anyone who says misogyny exists. I do think it exists to some extent. It still, does exist. But. Yeah. Yeah. but there are also situations in which we should care about what's happening to men as well but i no, know that I,
1: I, no i fully yeah. agree with you on this um there is just a f- far stronger pressure for a variety of reasons on younger women over younger men and i it kind of boils down if we wanted to say the leftist perspective on it is young men are a lost cause young mm-hmm. women are not a lost cause which is sad yeah in terms of being able to turn them into leftist vampires oh. uh, more or less <laughs> You can turn leftist women into right. politically active <laughs> things as opposed to you can't You can't really turn the guys that well. Yeah. The guys are just kind of like beaten down and like, eh, that's yeah. kind of um, – they're ignored. They're just ignored. Uh, they're not as interesting. They're not as useful. I mean, there's a lot of deeper stuff that I don't know how to even get into in an intelligent way. Where this particular manifestation of the ideology and activism right now preys upon, you know, empathy and compassion and things that women are statistically slightly higher attuned to. Yeah. And whereas men, you know, disagree yeah, disagreeable and probably just want to go out and shoot something or throw an <laughs> axe or, you know, ride a bicycle off of a off of a roof roof yeah I was trying to think of like a cliff no not that high (laughs) like what's the thing like yeah and so you know having grown up male it's like I know that there's like so much of that and then it's like you guys just want to go ride bikes like screw this yeah the social
0: dynamic aspect is is much more pervasive yeah it, it, it is
1: it's a social thing and so it's easier to be socially violent on the internet than it is to be in real life and then um I I would add to that that also, you know, personality disorders, the violence that comes with those uploads even more efficiently onto the Internet. You don't know if you're dealing with a crazy person when all they have is, you know, some nice picture they took of themselves at a very flattering angle or whatever. Um, (laughs) And that's all. And then their words typed with no intonation, no view of their eyes, no kind of assessment of their, of their, their person and being. These things upload very, very well. And so, you know, it's very parasitic in that way. And so... I don't know a way to put it. Vampires go where the blood is and there is blood there. And so women are, young women are being for a variety of reasons are being vigorously targeted by this ideology. Um, And this is, I think why you see a dramatic difference in the rates of young women identifying as either trans or gender dysphoric or non-binary or pansexual or whatever. And you see a rather sharp, sharply less, amount of that happening in, in young men. I mean, there are other reasons. I don't know if it's true or not uh, from a data pr- perspective, and maybe you do, um, that women's sexuality is more spectrum than men's sexuality, um, from what I've heard. Yeah, I don't uh,
0: like to use the word spectrum, but it's more flexible, I'd say.
1: Yeah, flexible is a better word. Um, yeah, men are usually one or the other and all the way. And if you read reports about what gay men write about women's bodies, it's pretty horrific the way mm-hmm. they describe them. Um, but to jump off of this entirely, since you brought it up, the changes going through the body and the, the sexism and misogyny and other issues, a lot of people don't know that programs are ham-fistedly, is the nicest way to possibly put it, working into that specific topic. I don't know if you knew that, but you will see. They always do. Um, <laughs> yes. Where they're intervening on, say, 12-year-old 7th grade girls and uh, trying to get them to discuss the changes going on in their body and the changes of, mm. of, of attention, etc. And then to use that vulnerability to graft in, you know, gender and sexual ideologies like, you know, post-structuralist feminism or whatever else on the back end. And so that so is bad. being used in a particularly sick way yeah. um, to, to manipulate children into these ideologies as well.
0: I'm going to do a separate episode just for people listening about grooming, like what what parents need to look out for. Do you have any tips you want to throw in?
1: You know, um, you've got to ask a lot of questions. If you find that they anywhere you find somebody that's asking vastly too personal questions, you need to be suspicious anywhere. Like I've seen posters put up in schools, uh, pictures of them. So I didn't see them myself of, you know, it's kind of rainbow flags everywhere and like panda bears or something cute. And it says, you know, your parents may reject that you're LGBTQ. I'm your mom now. And it's talking about the school. Like if you see stuff like that, like the building's on fire, you need to protect (laughs) your kid. They're they're being pretty overt right now. And so, you know, I'd also advise parents to look, you know, you have these controversies about books, very graphic novels, we'll put it very mildly. Um, You see what's happening in the state of Florida and you can kind of tell the people who flip out when they're limited in their ability to engage in these behaviors um you have to you have to become suspicious of them you you do need higher scrutiny on people who are incredibly for whatever set of reasons invested i'm not going to say that they're necessarily groomers but you need to become more suspicious of people who are very highly invested in Mm -hmm. maintaining these programs or keeping access to these books around and harder questions need to be asked more and more. If you see something outright, like, you know, that's trying to separate children from their parents using gender or sexuality as a reason, that's absolutely inappropriate in every regard. And your your alarm needs to be ringing at five, five alarms right there.
0: Okay, quickly to a few audience questions. What have been the personal effects of reading so many of these nonsensical papers and being so immersed in these ideas?
1: You know, I don't. I don't know if I'm really ready to talk about this, but man, sometimes it gets dark. Mm. People think that the papers are nonsense, but they're not, they're evil. Um, and when you can actually read and you can see the intentions and you see the assumptions and you understand where it's coming from. And I get this more when I read Marx himself or when I read the sixties Marxists and kind of everything else is less. It get, I, I have to take it breaks. <laughs> I get dark. Mm. Like I get, Black pill, as they say it in a certain way, but it's different than, oh no, we're going to lose. It's like a, it's psychologically dark. Reading Marx is actually, I hate to put it this way, but it's true. Marx has been the worst. If I deep read Marx, I'm in a bad place psychologically, sometimes for a few weeks after, um, Herbert Marcuse and some of the uh, Max Horkheimer from the middle of the 20th century do that to me. When I read stuff like queer theory or critical race theory, um, I very rarely go all the way dark. I'm mostly just frustrated. Like, how on earth could so many people have continued to validate this again and again? It's so transparently stupid, so transparently bad. Um, And so I get more... When I read the stuff that we perceive as more um, nonsensical, I get frustrated when I read the deeper kind of origin point theory stuff it's actually psychologically dark and so the impact is not good and i have finally hit the point where i have to step away from it and do other things and then hmm. kind of wade back in because the the mental state gets very dark and ugly
0: man i need people in graduate school who absolutely loved karl marx and it makes me wonder what that says about their psychology <laughs>
1: I don't know. I have a friend whose like weird thing is to, he calls it ingesting the poison. So he likes to get drunk or like take drugs or something and then try to go be in public and be normal. And like (laughs) tries to see if he can make it so nobody will notice that he's ingested the poison. It's like his little stupid spiritual practice he has for himself. And um, I feel like that, but it's like the ideological version of it. It's like, I feel like I'm drinking a bottle of poison and I'm trying to metabolize it. And it's still like, you know, Go read the end of Harry Potter number six where Dumbledore is drinking the bad poison so he can get the potion so he can get the the locket out of the little bowl or whatever. And it's it's that when I read Marx and some of these 60s guys.
0: What do you do to get yourself into a more healthy frame of mind after?
1: Uh, Put it down, exercise, touch grass, as they say, go outside more, try to spend time with people who I like, Um, (laughs) read something else. I, d- I don't have time to read fiction and things like that. Another thing that often helps is to kind of do a purge by either speaking it out into the microphone for a podcast or writing it down. It's almost like telling somebody like, hey, there's this and this is what it really says. And here's how I know is what it really there's somehow that's weirdly therapeutic to me to just kind of talk it out, I yeah. guess. Even if it's just to the microphone here. Um, So those kinds of things. But going outside and and getting out, especially in like sunlight (laughs) and exercise and remembering that, that, you know, it's really weird. I I like to watch birds sometimes. Not like a bird watcher. I'm not a birder. But I have, you know, a little bird bath in my yard. Like just watching like they have no clue any of this is happening. (laughs) And just watching that and kind of (laughs) connecting to they don't know or care that any of this is happening. There are other things going on. Okay. I can kind of separate from it a little bit.
0: What type of sword will you carry when society falls apart?
1: I mean, I only know how to use two, really. With any, I mean, I kind of know how to use a third one, and I'm only really good with one. So I apparently have to carry the one that's good. That's <laughs> what the ki- Chinese call a jian. Uh, so it's the Chinese longsword. It's the only sword. I mean, I guess I could a- adapt to a European longsword, but it's going to be a longsword because it's the only one I really know how to use.
0: Do you have nicknames for your swords? You know, people nickname... No. No, uh,
1: the sword, the saber, and the katana. Nobody's okay. seen the katana. I have a katana too. Everybody, of course, of a certain age, was a dork and wanted to get a katana, <laughs> and so I have a katana. I'm not. I did learn a little bit of kendo many years ago, and I'm not at all competent with a katana. So I can swing it around. I can adapt what we call the saber, which is a which is a dao, Chinese dao. I, it's a chinese broadsword i can adapt the broadsword to the katana very easily because they're similar weapons um although you use them very differently uh and i'm somewhat competent with the dao but i'm actually pretty decent with a jen so long sword i'm going to carry a long sword
0: what do you like least about michael malice
1: <laughs> well the joke is michael his like. nose the joke would have to be his nose of course <laughs> no uh for people I like days, michael, michael a lot. put
0: this michael put this I, question to yeah, me yeah <laughs> he thinks he's so funny
1: michael malice thinks he's so funny because he asked you me know, this for
0: blair's episode as well
1: <laughs> yeah well that's all you know he's he's obsessed with what people don't like about him um no i'm just kidding he, he's a great guy i i actually like michael quite a bit i haven't had the pleasure of spending time with him in person but i hope to change that at some point he seems like a fun dude um I don't know what I like. I hate being put on the spot. I mean, I even saw the question. I saw it in my Twitter DM or the (laughs) notifications. (laughs) Well, I was like, probably will, but I just don't care. And the running joke, because the first time I went on his podcast, he was like, all right, last question. What do you like best about me? And I was like, your nose. And so what I like least about him is his nose.
0: Perfect. Okay. Thank you, James, so much. Where can everyone find you? Where can they get race Marxism?
1: So race Marxism, you can go to racemarxism.com, which will redirect you straight to Amazon because we independently published it. And so it's only available there. Now that'll spread out in a month or two. I don't know how their extended distribution works. Um, the, you can find me at conceptual James on most of your favorite social media platforms. I run a website called new discourses, which is at new discourses.com and it's social media is at new discourses. And, uh, the podcast that I run, which I think people should listen to probably the grammar Schools series, at least if you're interested in what's happening in schools, is the New Discourses podcast. You can find it wherever you like to get podcasts, but it's also the primary thing happening on, on NewDiscourses.com right now. So you can find it on the website there uh, or the YouTube channel for New Discourses. So that's kind of all the things of where to find me and where to find my stuff. Conceptual James on social media for a good time. Guaranteed. <laughs>
0: All right. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you.